Hi, I'm Mark Lichtenwalter, the host for Fundamentally Mormon, part of the Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Today we're going to be covering Chapter 4 of Jesus Was Married, pages 16 through 28, and we're going to be speaking of the Gospel Law of Marriage. The beginning of this podcast, we will be listening to a recorder program to cover the chapter with no commentary. It is 28 minutes long. I hope that you enjoy this program. Thank you for listening. Here we go. The Gospel Lord, Chapter 4 of Jesus Was Married Pages 16 to 28 The definition of fulfilling the requirements of the law was used when Jesus came to John to be baptized. Baptism was the law and the gospel, practiced by the Jews before Jesus began his ministry. When John refused to baptize the Savior, Jesus demanded John to suffer it to be so, because it was necessary that he fulfill the requirements of the laws of righteousness. Baptism is one of the eternal laws and commandments to which even the Savior of the world had to comply, or fulfill. It is not compatible with the laws of heaven that one be exalted without obedience to these eternal laws. Although Jesus was that lawgiver, it does not permit him the distinction of also being a lawbreaker. Obedience was a particular requirement upon the Savior for every law and ordinance of the gospel. This confession came from Jesus himself when he said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill. He was the example of perfect obedience to the gospel laws. And marriage, like baptism, is one of the eternal laws. One of the Old Testament and Talmudic laws required every rabbi to be married. It was not until the 20th century that this law was changed, generally among the Reformed and Conservative Jews. However, there are no unmarried rabbis today among the Orthodox Jews. Marriage was one of the first commandments. Therefore, a rabbi was called to be an example, and to gain that experience before he could properly counsel and teach others concerning this commandment. A profound scholar writing on this subject says, Jesus said once that he came to fulfill the law, the first positive commandment of the Bible according to rabbinic understanding is the dealing with the propagation of the human race. Thus it has been considered the duty of every member of the house of Israel to marry at an early age. The late rabbis set 18 as the age for marriage, and anyone, they maintained, who remained after 20 without marrying was cursed by God himself, kid. 29b. Early traditions, however, persistently encouraged children to marry as soon as they reached the age of puberty, saying. 76b. And many important Jews are known to have been married at such an early age. Indeed, so important was marriage regarded in ancient Israel that frequently men who had passed 20 without marrying, were compelled by the courts to take a wife. M. Zvi Adli, T. H. M. 
Ph.D. Celibacy is by no means a virtue among the Jewish people. Indeed it is for this reason that many Jews cannot accept Christianity. Said Rabbi Hirsch, now as the life of Jesus is pictured in the New Testament, there are certain peculiar defects in that life from the Jewish point of view. His teachings are the ideal teachings of Judaism. They are not new teachings, nor new revelations. They are confirmations of Jewish thought and life. But his personal life, I am speaking respectfully. I do not think anyone should think I cast any shadow on the beauty and perfection of that life. But I can take it as it is pictured, you know he was not married and from the Jewish point of view, that is a defect. The Jewish morality insists that a man who does not assume the social responsibility for the continuation of society, lives a life that is not complete. The ancient Jewish prophets depicted the life of their Messiah in minute detail. The time and place of his birth, his teachings, the betrayal, crucifixion, etc. were all accurately predicted. Later Jewish scholars, almost without exception, have interpreted these prophecies to include their Messiah to be married. In the Jewish society, marriage was a commandment strictly observed, almost as a compulsory law. Every Jewish man should marry at 18, and he who marries earlier is more meritorious. Since the Mishnah fixes the 18th year of one's life as the age of marriage, a man unmarried after this time is, in many communities, regarded as not having conformed with inviolable tradition. Marriage was firmly implanted in the minds of all Jewish men. However, it was most rigidly observed by those who complied to the laws and offices of rabbi and priest. Jewish law required a high priest to be married on that day of atonement. And so important was this law that in the case of some unforeseen circumstance, an extra woman was held in readiness for the marriage. This marriage on the Day of Atonement was a prerequisite for entering the sanctuary. Paul wrote that Jesus was the great high priest who would make atonement for all men. Since one of the laws of great high priest office was marriage, then every priest including Jesus had to comply with that ordinance to fulfill the obligation of that office. Also, Paul wrote in an epistle that Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now then, if it were required that the high priests be married to enter the holy places on earth, which are but figures of the true, then how much more demanding are the requirements to enter into the heavenly sanctuary? The scriptures render some evidence that Christ did fulfill the law of marriage. Apostolos and Spencer asked this familiar question and then proceeded to answer it. Well, say you, I am partly constrained to feel satisfied that all the New Testament writers fully agree with you, as to the divine authority and perpetuity of the patriarchal system of marriage, an increase of their posterity. But they'll want one more additional proof in favor of the system, before every relic of doubt can be swept from my mind. I want you to show me distinctly that Christ Jesus was ever married, or ever had a wife, or that he ever will be married and had a wife. 
If you can satisfy my curiosity on this one remaining point, then I will forbear. Well, this makes me think of a similar question dictated by the Holy Ghost 1800 years ago. The question was this, who shall declare his generation? Now, sir, if you can believe an angel from heaven, and the light of human eyes on this point, you will not need much of my testimony to confirm it. A certain angel, spoken of in the revelation of Street, John, willing to gratify curiosity upon this same interesting subject says to one, come hither, and I will show the bride, the lamb's wife, to the inquisitive person who wanted to know about the wife of Christ. Again, John the Revelator says, most distinctly, that the Lamb's wife hath made herself ready, and blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, if the Lord has in very deed shown unto men in the flesh, the very bride, and wife of Christ, and also the nuptial celebration, then an honest mind may be at rest upon this subject. The first miracle that Jesus wrought, was used to grace a nuptial celebration. And sir, God claims to be the father of the human family, that is, of our spirits, and so far as the body of Jesus our elder brother is concerned, he is his father in the flesh. He made a covenant with Jesus Christ, our eldest brother, that his family, after whom all heaven is named, should increase without end. The same was repeated to Abraham, and all that are Christ's, down to the last person that shall ever be born. The last child of Christ that is born, whether in the millennium or final consummation and end of all things, would claim this promise of endless increase. Both modern and ancient historians generally agree that all of the apostles were married. Clement of Alexandria, born about 150 occupy the most profound and interesting position in the history of Christianity. He was a philosopher, historian, and Christian whose works are most valuable in formulating much of the early Christian church. A century and a half later another historian, Eusebius, quoted many portions of Clement's works. Eusebius was a founder of a theological school and is said to have been one of the most learned men of his age said he, now Clement, whose words we have just quoted, after what has already been mentioned, with respect to those who reject marriage gives a list of the apostles who were known to have been married, saying, or will they disapprove even the apostles? For Peter and Philip begot children, and Philip, too, gave his daughters to husbands, and Paul does not hesitate in an epistle to address his wife whom he did not take about with him that he might facilitate his ministry. Since we have mentioned these matters, there is no harm in my presenting another narrative of the same author, which he wrote down in Book 7 of the Stromata, relating it in the following way, they say, indeed, that the blessed Peter, when he beheld his wife being led away to death, rejoiced because of her calling and return home, and called out to her very encouragingly and comfortingly, addressing her by name, O thou, remember the Lord. Such was the marriage of the blessed and the perfect disposition of those dearest to them. Let these matters germane to the subject at hand suffice on my part for the moment at this point. 
The fact that Paul and the other apostles were married has been accepted and taught by President Brigham Young and other leaders of the church. For example, Apostolosan had said, The bishop is to be the husband of one wife. And as for old Paul, everybody says he lived and died a bachelor. But he said all things were lawful for him, and that he had power to leave about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas. Paul did not make known all things, for all things were not lawful to tell. He said himself, he knew a man that was caught up to the third heavens, and heard things unlawful to utter. If he did not take a wife, and multiply, and replenish the earth, he did not fulfill the first great fundamental law of nature. The Lord never forbid any of his disciples from marriage, nor did he ever indicate that he himself could not marry. The Presbyterian minister and professor at Davis and Elking College in West Virginia recently wrote that Jesus must have been married. His article was immediately picked up and published by other religious newspapers, one of which is shown on the following page. Asbury Park Evening Press, Saturday March the 22nd, 1969, Jesus may have Wednesday to be righteous Elkins, W. The Ape, Jesus may have been married and the father of children, according to a Presbyterian minister professor at Davis and Elkins College. Marev. Dr. William Phipps, writing in the current issue of the Journal of Ecumenical Studies said that failure to marry and reproduce was regarded a serious sin in biblical times. If Jesus had been a bachelor, Marev. Dr. Phipps contends. The Bible would surely contain some record of his being criticized for it. He said Jesus probably wasn't married during the last three years of his life that are recorded in the New Testament, but it's logical to infer that he had been married earlier and was a widower. Marev. Dr. Phipps said that in Greek translations of the Bible there's no difference in the word for wife and woman, and the Bible often mentions Jesus being with a woman. Under Talmudic law, a man couldn't be considered righteous, in fact, couldn't even be considered a complete man if he didn't marry and have children, Dr. Phipps writes. The Talmud asserts very strongly that it's almost the same as committing murder to not reproduce. This article was also reproduced in the Christian Beacon. 3 slash 27 slash 69, a May 1969 editorial in the Showers of Blessings, publication of Denver, Colorado, picked up this same theme and added their comments. Once the ice of superstition has been broken, then others will join in the activity. Was Jesus married? Let us look at the requirement for the priesthood. The Old Testament law required that a man be 30 years of age and married in order to become a priest. That is why Yahshua the Messiah, Jesus, was not baptized and not anointed and did not begin his ministry in Palestine until his 30th birthday, which was on October the 5th, 30 at an associated press report from Elkins, West Virginia says, quote, Jesus may have been married and the father of children, according to a Presbyterian minister, professor at Davis and Elkins College. 
drive. William Phipps, writing in the current issue of the Journal of Ecumenical Studies said that failure to marry and reproduce was regarded as a serious sin in biblical times. If Jesus had been a bachelor, Dr. Phipps contends, the Bible would surely contain some record of his being criticized for it. Drive. Phipps said that in Greek translation of the Bible there's no difference in the word for wife and woman, and the Bible often mentions Jesus being with a woman. Under Talmudic law, a man couldn't be considered righteous, in fact, couldn't even be considered a complete man if he didn't marry and have children, Dr. Phipps writes. The Talmud asserts very strongly that it's almost the same as committing murder to not reproduce. End quote. I have quoted similar views in my writings many times. Not quoting from the Talmud, but from the Old Testament law of Moses and the meaning of New Testament words such as those used by Martha when she said to Mary, her sister, the master is come and collect for thee. Master was the title that a wife used when speaking of her husband. The New Testament also required that all church officers such as bishops, elders, and deacons be married and the fathers of children. A man that is not married or who has never been married meets neither the Old Testament Israel nor the New Testament church requirement for the priesthood. The Apostle Peter was married. Saul of Tarsus, who was better known as Paul, was married for that was a requirement to be a member of the Sanhedrin. And Saul, Paul, sat on that council and voted for the death of Stephen. The truth makes us free. Jesus, Yahshua, was probably married before and during all the time of his ministry. Many women traveled with him and ministered to his needs. And it came to pass afterward, that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. This announcement by an accepted minister and professor was given public news coverage, Newsweek magazine also gave national publicity to his findings. Newsweek, March the 24th, 1969, Religion, A Married Christ? The Roman Catholic case for clerical celibacy rests, historically, on the examples of Jesus and some of his apostles particularly Saint Paul, who have been traditionally considered bachelors. But in the current issue of the Journal of Ecumenical Studies, Presbyterian scholar William E. Phipps raises the possibility that both Jesus and Paul, like St. Peter, were actually married men. A religion professor at West Virginia's Davis and Elkins College, Phipps argues inferentially that Jesus shared the normative Jewish view that marriage was a sacred duty for himself as fathers. When Jesus was asked for his views, Continues the author, he responded by endorsing the ideal of Genesis, which held that man and woman were created for each other. Phipps notes that the time between Jesus' 12th and 30th years, 
on which the New Testament is silent, covers the period when betrothal, marriage and reproduction took place in Jesus' society. Widowers, though some scriptural dilettantes have tried to suggest more than a casual relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, Phipps finds no positive evidence that Jesus actually took her or anyone else as his wife. On the other hand, he concludes, there is no valid reason to suppose that Jesus, as the obedient son of an obedient Jewish father, did not marry and become a widower in the two decades prior to his public ministry. As for St. Paul, who has often been accused of being misogynic, Phipps cites Clement of Alexandria, a church father who as early as the 2nd century claimed that all the apostles were married. The author also finds scriptural evidence suggesting that the peripatetic apostle was indeed a widower who did not remarry because he expected the imminent end of the world. He believes Paul's famous advice to that unmarried in I Corinthians should really be translated to the widowers and widows I say that it is good for them if they remain as I am. Sums up Phipps, the institution celibacy was not a product of apostolic Christianity, but probably grew out of later contact with ascetic ideals of Greek philosophy. Recent manuscripts found in QUMRAN and other excavations have introduced further information to substantiate Christ's marriage. In the Gospel according to Thomas there are significant references to the marriage of Jesus. Log 22 they, the disciples, said to him, Shall we then, being children, enter the kingdom? Jesus said to them, When you make the two one, one flesh, or marriage, and when you make the inner as the outer, and when you make the male and the female into a single one, married, so that the male will not be male and the female not be female, then shall you enter the kingdom. Log. 114, Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary go out from among us, because women are not worthy of the life. Jesus said, See, I shall lead her, so that I will make her male, one marriage, that she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. And in another apocryphal manuscript called Gospel of Philip, Log 32, there were three who walked with the Lord at all times, Mary his mother and her, his sister and Magdalene, whom they call his consort. For Mary was the name of his sister and his mother and his consort. Consort, one, a husband or wife. Log 55. The Sophia whom they call Baron is the mother of the angels. And the consort of Christ is Mary Magdalene. The Lord loved Mary more than all the disciples, and kissed her on her mouth often. The others too. They said to him, Why do you love her more than all of us? The Saviour answered and said to them, Why do I not love you like her? In the commentary of this book, Dr. Wilson quotes Peter as saying, We know that the Saviour loved you more than other women. Referring to Mary Magdalene, and he quotes Levi as saying later, He loved her more than us. Celibacy had no recognition within the scriptures, 
Ancient Jewish law and early Christian law sanctioned and required their disciples to obey the marriage covenant. If the apostles fulfilled the law of marriage, it is only reasonable to assume that they were obeying that law by sanction and direction of the lawgiver himself. And though Jesus gave and instructed his disciples in all of the laws of the gospel, including marriage, it is most unreasonable that he would neglect or refuse to obey that law himself. Jesus Christ never omitted the fulfillment of a single law that God had made known for the salvation of the children of men. It would not have done for him to have come and obeyed one law and neglected or rejected another. He could not do that and then say to mankind, follow me. The first principle, ordinance, and commandment given to man was the marriage law. It would indeed seem very peculiar that the Lord of all mankind would be a perfect example in all things except marriage. Historical records, scriptural evidence, and reason all prove that he was the good shepherd in obeying every law of the gospel. 29.
part two. This is my reading with the commentary. At the end of this, I'm going to share a message from Perry Stone, who is a pastor in Cleveland, Tennessee, who shared a very important message about the harp. That's why we're listening to harp music with the reading today. The Gospel Law, Chapter 4 of Jesus Was Married, pages 16 through 28. The definition of fulfilling the requirements of the law was used when Jesus came to John to be baptized. Baptism was a law of the gospel practiced by the Jews before Jesus began his ministry. Side note, the Jews call baptism the mikvah. When John refused to baptize the Savior, Jesus demanded John to suffer it to be so, because it was necessary that he fulfill the requirements of the law of righteousness. Baptism is one of the eternal laws and commandments to which even the Savior of the world had to comply or to fulfill. It is not compatible with the laws of heaven that one be exalted without obedience to these eternal laws. Although Jesus was the lawgiver, it does not permit him the distinction of also being a lawbreaker. Obedience was a particular requirement upon the Savior for every law and ordinance of the gospel. This confession came from Jesus himself when he said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill. He was the example of perfect obedience to the gospel laws and marriage, like baptism, is one of the eternal laws. One of the Old Testament and Talmudic laws required every rabbi to be married. It was not until the 20th century that this law was changed, which is generally only among the Reformed and conservative Jews. However, there are no unmarried rabbis today among the Orthodox Jews. Marriage was one of the first commandments. Therefore, a rabbi was called to be an example and to gain that experience before he could properly counsel and teach others concerning this commandment. A profound scholar writing on this subject says, quote, Jesus said once that he came to fulfill the law. The first positive commandment of the Bible according to rabbinic understanding, which was uh, spoken by Maimonides, who was a rabbi many, many, many years ago, like 212, I think, is that dealing with the propagation of the human race, and you can find that in Bereshit or Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Side note. 
what it means to fulfill the law according to the Hebrew Hebraic understanding is to live it perfectly, which Jesus did. Thus it has been considered the duty of every member of the house of Israel to marry at an early age. The late rabbis set 18 as an age for marriage and anyone they maintained who remained after 20 without marrying was cursed by God himself. Earlier traditions, however, persistently encouraged children to marry as soon as they hit the age of puberty. Sanhedrin, Tractate 76b. That's in the Talmud. Many important Jews are known to have been married at such an early age. Indeed, so important was marriage regarded in ancient Israel that frequently men who passed the age of 20 without marrying were compelled by the courts to take a wife. Celibacy is by no means a virtue among the Jewish people. Side note, they considered not marrying, killing generations of unborn children. So it was like almost as bad, if not worse, than killing, according to the Hebrew traditions and customs, especially in Jesus's day. So if he was not married, they would have thrown that in his face, but they never did because he was married. Indeed, it is for this reason that many Jews cannot accept Christianity, said Rabbi Hirashek. Now, as the life of Jesus is pictured in the New Testament, there are certain particular defects in that life from the Jewish point of view. His teachings are the ideal teachings of Judaism. They are not new teachings, nor new revelations. They are confirmation of Jewish thought and life. But his personal life, I am speaking respectfully, I do not think anyone should think I cast any shadow on the beauty and perfection of that life. But I can take it as it is pictured. You know, he was not married, and from the Jewish point of view, that is a defect. Jewish morality insists that a man who does not assume the social responsibility for the continuation of society lives a life that is not complete. And quote, Rabbi Emil Hirschek, My Religion, New York, 1925, pages 43 through 44. The ancient Jewish prophets depicted the life of their Messiah or Mashiach in minute detail. The time and place of his birth, his teachings, the betrayal, crucifixion, etc. were all accurately predicted. Later Jewish scholars almost, almost without exception 
have interpreted these prophecies to include their Mary or their Messiah to be married. In the Jewish society, marriage was a commandment strictly observed, almost as a compulsory law. Every Jewish man should marry at 18 or by the age of 18, and he who marries earlier is more meritorious. The Shalakian Aruch by Ibn Hazir, volume 1, page 3. Since the Mishnah fixes the eight, the 18th year of one's life as an age of marriage, a man unmarried after this time is in many communities regarded as not having conformed with the inviolable tradition. And quote Jewish Ceremonies and Customs by William Rosenu, page 155. Marriage was firmly implanted in the minds of all Jewish men. However, it was most rigidly observed by those who compiled the laws and offices of rabbi and priest. Jewish law required a high priest to be married on the Day of Atonement. And so important was this law that in the case of some unforeseen circumstances, an extra woman was held in readiness for the, mar- for the marriage. This marriage on the Day of Atonement was a prerequisite for entering the sanctuary. Shaul, or Paul, wrote that Jesus was the great high priest who would make atonement for all men. Since one of the laws of great high priest office was marriage, then every priest, including Yeshua or Jesus, had to comply with that ordinance to fulfill the obligation of that office. Also, Shaul, or Paul, wrote in an epistle that Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the truth, but unto heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, for us. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24. Now then, if it were required if it were required that the high priest be married to enter the holy place on earth, which are but figures of the true, then how much more demanding are the requirements to enter into the heavenly sanctuary? Page 19. The scriptures render some evidence that Christ did fulfill the law of marriage, which means, once again, to fulfill the law is to live it perfectly. The apostle Orson Spencer asked this familiar question and then proceeded to answer it. Quote, Well, say you, I am partly constrained to feel satisfied that all the New Testament writers fully agreed with you as to the divine authority and perpetuity, perpetuity, I can't say that word, perpetuity of the patriarchal system of marriage and increase of their posterity, 
but I want one more additional proof in favor of the system before every relic of doubt can be swept from my mind. I want you to show me distinctly that Christ Jesus was ever married or ever had a wife or that he ever will be married and have a wife. If you can satisfy my curiosity on this one remaining point, then I will forbear. Well, this makes me think of a similar question dedicated by the Holy Ghost 1800 years ago. The question was this, who shall declare his generation? Now, sir, if you can believe an angel from heaven, the light of human eyes on this point, you will not need much of a testimony to confirm it. A certain angel spoken of in the revelation of St. John, willing to gratify curiosity beyond the same interesting subject, says to one, Come hither, and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. To the inquisitive person who wanted to know about the wife of Christ, again John the Revelator says most distinctly that the Lamb's wife hath made herself ready, and blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now if the Lord has in very deed shown unto men in the flesh the very bride and wife of Christ, and also the nuptial celebration, then an honest mind may be at rest upon the subject. The first miracle that Jesus wrought was used to grace the nuptial celebration, and sir, God claims to be the father of the human family, that is, of our spirits, and so far as the body of Jesus is our elder brother, is concerned he is the father in the flesh he made a covenant with jesus christ our eldest brother that his family after whom all heaven is named should increase without end the same was repeated to abraham and all that are christ's down to the last person that shall ever be born the last child of christ that is born whether in the millennium or final consummation and end of all things will claim this promise of endless increase. And quote by Orson Spencer, uh, Orson Spencer's letters, who was an apostle in the LDS church, page 224 through 226. Both modern and ancient historians generally generally agree that all of the apostles were married. Clement of Alexandria, born about 150 AD, occupied a most profound and interesting position in the history of Christianity. He was a philosopher, historian, and Christian whose works are most valuable in formulating much of the early Christian church. A century and a half later, another historian, Eusebius, quoted many portions of Clement's work, works, 
Eusebius was a founder of a theological school and is said to have been one of the most learned men of his age. He said, Now Clement, whose words we have just quoted after what has already been mentioned with respect to those who reject marriage, gives a list of the apostles who are known to have been married. Stromata, Volume 3, page 52, saying, Or will they disapprove even of the apostles? For Peter and Philip begot children, and Philip too gave his daughters to husbands. And Paul does not hesitate in an epistle to address his wife, Philomian, Philomon, chapter 4, verse 3, and 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 5 and 13, whom he did not take about with him that he might facilitate his ministry. So basically, he traveled without his wife. Since we have mentioned these matters, there is no harm in my presenting another narrative of the same author, which he wrote down in Book 7 of the Stramada, relating to or relating it in the following ways. They say, indeed, that the blessed Peter, when he beheld his wife being laid away to death, rejoiced because of her calling and returning home. And called out to her very encouragingly and comfortingly, addressing her by name. O thou remember the Lord. Such was the marriage of the blessed and perfect perfect disposition of those dearest to them. Stramata, Volume 7, page 63 and 64. Let these matters germane to the subject at the hand suffice on my part for the moment of this point. Ecclesiastical History of Eus- uh, by Eusebius, Book 3, Chapter 30. The fact that Paul and the other apostles were married has been accepted and taught by President Brigham Young and other leaders of the church. For example, Apostle Orson Hyde stated, The bishop is to be the husband of one wife. And as for old Paul, everybody says he lived and died a bachelor, but he said all things were lawful for him. That and that he had power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas. Paul did not make known all things, for all things were not lawful to tell. He said himself he knew a man, in, a man that was caught up to the third heaven and heard things unlawful to utter. If he did not take a wife and multiply and replenish the earth, he did not fulfill the first great fundamental law of nature. Journal of Discourses, Volume 2, 
page 83 and 84. The Lord never forbid any of his disciples from marriage, nor did he ever indicate that he himself could not marry. A Presbyterian minister and professor at the Davis and Eklund College of West Virginia recently wrote that Jesus must have been married. His article is immediately picked up and published by other religious newspapers, one of which is shown on the following page. So we're on page 22, but it was printed in Asbury Park Evening Press, Saturday, March 22, 1969. Jesus may have wed to be righteous. Eklund's West Virginia, AP. That means Associated Press. Jesus may have been married and the father of children, according to the Presbyterian minister, professor at Davis and Eklund College. The Reverend Dr. William Phipps, writing in the current issue of the Journal of Ecumenical Studies, said that failure to marry and reproduce was regarded as a serious sin in biblical times. If Jesus had been a bachelor, the Reverend Dr. Phipps contends, the Bible would surely contain some record of his being criticized for it. He said Jesus probably wasn't married during the last three years of his life that are recorded in the New Testament, but it is logical to infer that he had been married earlier and was a widower. The Reverend Dr. Phipps said that in Greek translations of the Bible, there is no difference in the word for wife and woman. The Bible often mentions Jesus being with a woman. Under Talmudic law, a man couldn't be considered righteous, in fact, and couldn't be considered a complete man if he didn't marry and have children. Dr. Phipps writes, the Talmud asserts very strongly that it is almost the same as committing murder to not reproduce. This article was also reproduced in the Christian Beacon on March 27, 1969. Page 23. A May 1969 editorial of the Shower of Ble- Showers of Blessings publication of Denver, Colorado picked up this same theme and added their comments. Once the ice of superstition has been broken, then others will join in the activity. Was Jesus married? Let us look at the requirements for the priesthood. The Old Testament law required that a man be 30 years of age and married to become a priest. That is why Yeshua, or Jesus, the Messiah, was not baptized and anointed and did not begin his ministry in Palestine until the 30th birthday, which was on October 5th, 30 AD. That's kind of hard because King Herod died in three or two or three BC. Now there's no zero, there's no year zero. Um, Jesus was 
under the age of two before King Herod died. So Jesus was probably born in 5 BC. If you go out 30 years plus three years, he started his ministry in 25 AD and died in the year 28 AD. Now Jesus said that he would be in the in the earth for three days and three nights. Well, it just so happens that the high Sabbath of Pesach, or unleavened bread, Passover, started the evening of Wednesday in the correct month, and they had to get him off the cross before the holy day or the holy feast of uh, Passover, Pesach, started. The Last Supper was actually not a Passover meal. The tradition of the Jews was that the day before Passover, the rabbis would hold um, a rehearsal dinner. That's why there's no lamb at the Last Supper, but all of the other elements of the ancient Jewish Passover were part of the Last Supper, so people get a little bit confused. But I find it interesting that they had to get him off the cross before the Sabbath began, and a lot of people don't realize that the first day of unleavened bread is a high and holy Sabbath. So what happened was they had to get him off the cross. They put him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and that was Wednesday night. And he was in the tomb from Wednesday night to Thursday night, which was one day. From Thursday night to Friday night, which was one day. And then the weekly Sabbath, Friday night to Saturday night, was the third day. By the time Mary went to the tomb on the day of resurrection, it was dark outside. The first day of the week according to the Hebrew understanding, starts on Saturday evening after sundown. And it is that Jesus was resurrected on Saturday evening, not Sunday morning, like the Catholics try to push. So, this guy says October 5th, 30 AD. And, you know, October 5th, we can calculate when... Um, Jesus was born because John was six months older than Jesus and Zechariah, the father of John, had to go in the temple on a certain day to fulfill his priestly duties and we know when that is. So if you take that time plus nine months and you know when Jesus or when John was born, then you go six months out from that, you know, when Jesus was born. So there is some traditional misunderstandings that people get uh, because of wording in the Doctrine and Covenants that says that Jesus is actually born on April 6th. That doesn't work when you know the, uh, the correct dates for things. And it doesn't actually say that, even though a lot of people think that it does. Uh, was just that the church was organized on eight, eight, uh, in 1830 
1830 years after the day of our Lord or whatever, but so people misinterpret that. But anyway, it's not important for our salvation. I'm just telling you what I know and and I've studied it, but I don't have all of that information with me at this time. An important associated press report from Elkins, West Virginia says, quote, Jesus may have been married and the father of children, according to the Presbyterian minister and professor at Davis and Eklund's College. Dr. William Phelps, writing in the current issue of the Journal of Ecumenical Studies, said that failure to marry and produce, reproduce was regarded as a serious sin in biblical times. Actually, I know I already read this, so I don't know why it's going over this again. Let me see if I can just find... uh, Well, I'll start from here. I have quoted similar views on my writings many times, not quoting from the Talmud, but rather from the Old Testament law of Moses and the meaning of New Testament words, such as those used by Martha when she said to Mary, her sister, the master is come and calleth for thee. John chapter 11, verse 28. Master was the title that was used by a wife when speaking to her husband or Rabboni, is what it was in uh, Hebrew. The New Testament also requires that all church officers, such as bishops, elders, and deacons, be married and the father of children. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-4 through 4 and 12. A man that is not married or who has never been married meets neither the Old Testament Israel nor the New Testament church's requirement for the priesthood. The Apostle Peter was married, Matthew chapter 8, verse 4. Shaul of Tarsus, who is better known as Paul, was married, for that was a requirement to be a member of the Sanhedrin, and Paul, or Shaul, was a member of the Sanhedrin and voted for the death of Stephen, Acts chapter 7, verses 58 through 60, and also Acts chapter 8, verse 1. The truth makes us free. Jesus, or Yeshua, was probably married before and during the time of his ministry. Many women traveled with him and ministered to his needs. And it came to pass that he went throughout every city and village preaching and showing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Jonah, the wife of um, Caruza, Herod's steward, and Susan, and many others which minister unto him of their substance. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Page 17. Oh, I guess that's the page we're on now. Let me say something about Mary Magdalene real quick. I believe it's in the Joseph Smith translation 
that it corrects this whole idea that Mary had seven demons in her. That was changed by the early apostate church that wanted to destroy marriage among the priests, even though it goes completely against scripture. And they changed Mary Magdalene and tried to say that she was an, uh, a prostitute and she had all these demons. But in the inspired translation, it says that she was caught up to the seventh heaven. So take that for what you will. The announcement of an accepted minister and professor was given public news coverage. Newsweek magazine also gave national publicity to his findings. Newsweek, March 24, 1969, Religion. A married Jesus? The Roman Catholic case for cl clerical celibacy rests historically on the examples of Jesus and some of his apostles, particularly St. Paul, who have been traditionally considered bachelors. But in the current issue of the Journal of Ecumenical Studies, Presbyterian scholar William E. Phipps raises the possibility that both Jesus and Paul, like St. Peter, were actually married men. A religious professor at West Virginia's Davis and Eklund College, Phipps argues and fervently that Jesus shared the normative Jewish view that marriage was a sacred duty. For himself as for others. When Jesus was asked for his views in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, continues the author, he responded by endorsing the ideals of Genesis, or Bereshit, which held that men, that man and woman were created for each other. Phipps notes that the time between Jesus' 12th and 30th years on the New Testament is silent and covers the period when betrothal, marriage, and reproduction took place in Jesus' society. Widowers, through some scriptural, I don't know if that word is, um, dilettantes, dilettantes, had tried to suggest more than a casual relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Phipps finds no positive evidence that Jesus actually took her or anyone else as a wife. On the other hand, he concludes, there is no valid reason to suppose that Jesus, as the obedient son of an obedient Jewish father, did not marry and become a widower in the two decades prior to his public ministry. As for St. Paul, who has often been accused of being misogynistic, Phipps cites Clement of Alexandria, a church father who as early as the second century claimed that all the apostles were married. The author also finds scriptural evidence suggesting the Peripe, 
Pentic, I don't know how to say that word, Apostle was indeed a widower who did not remarry because he expected the in, imminent end of the world. He believes Paul's famous advice to the unmarried in 1 Corinthians should really be translated to the widowers and widow. I say that it is good for them that they remain as I am. Sums up Phipps, the institution or the in, institution celibacy was not a product of apostolic Christianity, but probably grew out of the later contact with the ascetic ideals of Jewish philosophy, or Greek philosophy. Page 26. The recent manuscripts found in the Qumran and other excavations have introduced further information to substantiate Christ's marriage. In the Gospel, according to Thomas, there are significant references to the marriage of Jesus. In Log chapter 22, they, the disciples, said to him, Shall we then, being children, enter into the kingdom? Jesus said to them, When you make the two one, one flesh or marriage, and when you make the inner as the outer, And when you make the male and the female into a single one married, so that the male will not be male and the female not female, then ye shall enter the kingdom. In Log 114, it says, Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary go out from among us, because women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, See, I shall lead her so that I will make her male, which is one in marriage, that she too may become a living spirit, resembling your males. For every woman who makes herself male will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That means they get married. That's the gospel according to Thomas, page 57. Coptic text established and translated by A. Gilemiot, um, 1959. Okay. In another apocryphal manus- manuscript called the Gospel of Philip, Log 32, there were three who walked with the Lord at all times, Mary his mother and her or his sister and Magdalene, whom they called his consort, for Mary was the name of his sister and and his mother and his consort. So there's three Marys there. Consort, a husband or wife. The book of uh, Encyclopedia Dictionary or the World Book Encyclopedia Dictionary of 1966. So that's what consort means. We're on page 27. Log 55. The Sophia, whom they call Baron, is the mother of the angels, and the consort, or the wife, of Christ is Mary Magdalene. The Lord loved Mary more than all the disciples and kissed her on the mouth often. So, the first person that Jesus went to after his resurrection wasn't any of the apostles. He went to Mary. That's who he went to first. 
The other two, they said of him, Why do you love her more than all of us? The Savior answered and said to them, Why do I not love you like her? And quote the Gospel of Philip, pages 35, 39, and 40. The translated from the Coptic text was an introduction and commentary by R. McL. Wilson, B.D., Ph.D., London, 1962. In this commentary of this book, Dr. Wilson quotes Peter as saying, We know that the Savior loved you more than, than other women, referring to Mary Magdalene. And he quoted Levi as saying later, he loved her more than us. Celibacy had no recognition within the the scriptures. Ancient Jewish law and early Christian law sanctioned and required their disciples to obey the marriage covenant. If the apostles fulfilled the law of marriage, It is only reasonable to assume that they were obeying that law by sanction and direction of the lawgiver himself. And through Jesus, and though Jesus gave and instructed his disciples in all of the laws of the gospel, including marriage, it is most reasonable that he would would neglect, I'm sorry, it is most unreasonable that he would neglect or refuse to obey that law himself. Jesus Christ never omitted the fulfillment of a single law that God had made known for the salvation of the children of men. It would not have done for him to have come and obeyed one law and neglected or rejected another. He could not do that and then say to mankind, follow me. Joseph F. Smith, Millennial Star, page six, uh, volume 62, page 97. So Joseph F. Smith was the sixth or seventh president of the church. I think he was the sixth president of the church. So it was Joseph Smith, John T- uh, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, Lorenzo Snow, Joseph F. Smith. So yeah. Sixth president of the church. We're on page 28. The first principle, ordinance, and commandment given to man was the marriage law. It would indeed seem very peculiar that the Lord of all mankind would be a perfect example of all things except marriage. Historical records, scriptural evidence, and reason all prove that he was the good shepherd in obeying every law of the gospel. So that's the end of that chapter. Now, I want to share this talk by Perry Stone about harps. I thought it was really interesting. And I'm just going to play it to wrap up the show. If you're interested, you can continue to listen. Perry Stone is... Perry Stone is a, a pastor. 
in Cleveland, Tennessee. Now, it's interesting. Um, we just got back from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We flew out of Raleigh, North Carolina. My wife has a brother and a bunch of family there. And she was raised there partly when she was growing up. So on the flight, I had my iPad, which has a GPS function in it. And I got to watch how fast we were going and the elevation and everything. And I could see what cities and the name of the different cities. And it was really cool because we flew just south of Cleveland, Tennessee, in Ashland, uh, Ash- Ashland, Kentucky, which is where Joshua Sparks lives. I'm not going to tell you who he is. If you know, you know. But it was really cool because, like, I could see Oklahoma City and then go to the other side of the airplane and see uh, Dallas. Like, we were flying over Flagstaff, and I could see Phoenix. Like, I don't know, when you're at 40,000 feet or 39,000 feet, it's amazing how you can see Chattanooga, Tennessee, and you can look south and see Atlanta, and you can look north and see Ashland. Like, I could see... the bright beautiful light in downtown Nashville on Saturday night that's in if you know you know I could see Knoxville I I could see Kansas City so we followed um, pretty much we followed I-40 like like from Raleigh down and then over we followed I-40 all the way across the country. It was pretty, pretty cool. Anyway, but um, when we were flying just south of Cleveland, Tennessee, I was like, there's where Perry Stone lives. And then we we're flying south of Nashville, and I was like, oh, there's, there's where uh, Michael Knowles and Matt Walsh live. And Ashland, I was. There's Joshua Spark, Sparks, and I was just watching and looking, and I know people from all over the, the world, really, but the country, and I was like, oh, there's where Tilly lives, oh, there's where, you know, all these different people, and it was just so interesting to have that perspective, and like, most of the time when you fly at night, like, you don't have a GPS, but... Um, for some reason it worked the whole time well pretty much the whole time and I could see how fast we were going which is kind of weird because when we were flying from the east out to Las Vegas which is where we landed we are only going about 450 440 miles an hour but on the way from Las Vegas to Raleigh we were going like 500 and something miles an hour. And I was thinking, I wonder if that's the rotation of the earth 
or just the prevailing winds. Anyway, so I'm going to play this now. It's only 13 minutes long. And uh, I think that a lot of people will find this very interesting. So I really, really enjoy Perry Stone. You can find him on YouTube. And this is a message by Perry Stone. And then, uh, then we'll be done with the program and I am going to go to bed because I am tired. I worked all night and I need to go to sleep. So here we go. 13 minutes with Perry Stone. The scripture. Oh, hold on here. It's important that you really watch everything I'm about to say. This is going to be one of the most unique and interesting teachings that I've ever put on my YouTube channel because it's it, it has great revelation in it. Now, this is a harp, and I was looking at this. I, I own this. I got it at an auction a long time ago, and we've never had it totally repaired yet. But this was made in London. It's harp number 2016. I was told it dates back to the 1700s. And, of course, it needs to be restrung. Now, the point that I make is to not to show you this beautiful old harp, but to share with you how that harp music is the music of heaven because they play harps in heaven, the elders, 24 elders, right before the throne of God. And the harp was invented in the scripture by a man by the name of Jubal, who was one of the early descendants of Adam. We want to, however, share with you some really important and exciting information about harp music and what it will do. I want to get one verse in the book of Samuel, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp and it shall be that he will play with his hand and when the distressing spirit from the Lord is upon you, you shall be made well. Now the Jewish tradition on David playing the harp was this. He placed the harp, he would hold it over his heart and put his ear on the wood and begin to quietly uh, play. But it was loud to his ear. The vibration of the harp would shake loose the shell around his heart. God would then send inspiration to David. So the harp was used according to Jewish tradition in the life of David to inspire him personally with inspiration. We do know that in the scripture that it says that Saul was refreshed, made well, and the evil spirit departed from him. The Hebrew word fresh means to breathe easy and to breathe uh, freely, uh, to have room to to revive. The word well in Hebrew means cheered up and doing well. Of course, the evil spirit departing speaks for itself. So the harp music was able to relieve a tormenting spirit that was in the life of Saul and caused that spirit to depart from Saul. Now, I want to ask you some quick questions. Was it the harp alone that did that? Or was it the song that David was playing on the harp? Or was it the anointing that was upon David while he played the harp? In secular music, 
there is a counterfeit unction or a counterfeit anointing that motivates the musician and the singers. In the kingdom of God, there is something called the anointing, which is another word is the unction of the Holy Spirit, that when they play any type of instrument and they are anointed, it comes through the music to the people that are listening. Now, I want to share some things with you. David said this in Psalms 144 and 1. He said, blessed be the Lord, my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. I always thought that he was referring to the slingshot or a bow and arrow when he alluded to that. However, if you keep going down in Psalms 144, verse 9, eight verses later, he says, I will sing a new song unto you, O God, upon a psaltery and upon an instrument of ten, ten strings will I praise thee. So watch this. David's weapon was not the slingshot or the spear and the bow and the arrow. It was the harp. It literally became an atmosphere uh, changer. The Bible said he was very skilled on the harp. So in other words, David could take this instrument, not this one, but a harp or a psaltery. And some of them had 10 strings and some of them uh, were much larger than that. Of course, had more strings than that. But he could actually shift the atmosphere with harp music. So I want to talk to you for a moment. I'm going to read some things here because I want to get this right on the power of harp music. This is from the National Institute on Health. Bone marrow transplants at the University of Rochester Medical Center, two times a week, a harp was used around them, you know, and music was played from a harp around them. They began to feel less pain and less nausea. The, those in the musical session also began producing white blood cells two days faster than the others. Harps in cardiac units have been used to reduce anxiety, pain, blood pressure, and the music from a harp secretes one-half levels of stress hormones. Now, I abbreviated that there. There's more detail than just that. The brain's hearing and emotional centers are completely impacted by the music of the harp. Um, when you begin to really uh, pay careful uh, attention to this, you also begin to find out that there's other research that's been done on a harp that I want to give you. Um, this is this is recent research. The human vibration, the human body operates off of electrical impulse, impulses because the heart can be shocked electronically or with electrical uh, impulses. The brain uh, also can be shocked. In other words, there have been people that have had difficulties with uh, neurological systems and the shock treatment has been used. A pacemaker has an electrical shock to it to keep your heart. Uh, so let me say it this way again. The human body is used to vibrations and impulses in the sense of using electrical impulses for the body. Uh, so watch this. There are strong instruments such as the guitar, the violin, and strings that a vibration is used to produce the sound. The harp resonates with the healthy vibrations of the human body. Let me say that again. The harp resonates with the healthy vibrations of the human body. There was a woman that was about to have heart surgery, and there was another woman in scrubs playing a harp. A, B, a BBC, the, that's the British Broadcasting Company, documentary noted that cancer cells, as harps are played, begin to actually change shapes. In Jerusalem, they discovered at a hospital that the sound of a harp increases oxygen absor absorption, which is needed for mental health. So you have all this amazing um, facts that are connected to the music of a harp. Now, Elijah the prophet, 
And I want to talk about spiritual warfare for about 30 seconds. Elijah the prophet, when going into actual battle, this is what the Bible said. Elisha said, as the Lord God of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat the king, I would not look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. Now the musician was playing a stringed instrument probably a harp. And as they played, the unction of God came upon the man and he was able to prophesy when the instruments were, were, uh, were playing. So there's so much more we could tell you. I, I could give you the history of the harp and, um, you know, how the harp is going to be used in heaven and all that type of thing. But I want to encourage you uh, that if you can get, get a hold of harp music or you can have uh, harp music played to use it if you're having physical difficulty, if you feel like you're being tormented by some type of a spirit, because it's an atmosphere changer. Years ago, in my partner's conference, I preached a message on the harp, the music of heaven. It's actually, it actually was called the music of angels. And uh, I had Larry Bean, who at that time was working with me, who was a great keyboard player, take the keyboard and shift it into the sound of a harp. All of a sudden, he hit the keyboard and began to play. Literally, I demonstrated this uh, before about let's say 800 people that were partners, the entire atmosphere immediately shifted. And I had, I asked Larry, I said, I want you to go to our studio. We have a sound studio here. And I want you to play songs of nothing but that sounds like a harp, no drums, no other instrument, no trumpet being used, just that. And he, and we did this CD called the music of angels, which is music, musical orchestration, um, and, and it's got about, um, you know, eight different songs, but it's only it only sounds like a harp. And uh, I have played this when I was in distress. I played this when I've been studying and I had a well-known and I didn't get his permission to tell the story. So I'm not going to use his name, but everybody watching will know him. He's on television. He's a Baptist minister. And he contacted our ministry and said, do you have more of those? That is one of the greatest audio CDs I've ever heard, and I use it all the time when I'm praying or studying. So I wanted to share with you, and by the way, if you're interested in this, you can get it, call our ministry or go online and get it through our ministry. I think it'll be a blessing. That's not why I did the teaching. I just told the guy, hey, bring that out here because people may want to know, do we have something available? So the power of the harp is biblical. The power of the harp uh, is found in heaven. And so I want to tell you that according to scripture, the harp sound played by someone who was anointed by the Lord, can drive away tormenting spirits and actually helps in the process of healing. And of course, the documentation is there. Go online and look up uh, harp music and the documentation is there and you can get a lot more documentation than what we've actually shared with you. So I thought that you'd find that interesting. It is a very special instrument and it has something to it that helps the vibrations of a human body. And again, the research has been done by different institutes that can help give you more information on that. Hope you've enjoyed this. Give it a thumbs up if you liked it and uh, keep watching uh, Perry Stone YouTube channel for the many other things that we're going to be sharing with you. God bless you. So once again, that's Perry Stone. He's one of my favorite Christian ministers. And uh, I recommend you follow him. You can do so on YouTube by searching Perry Stone. That's P-E-R-R-Y-S-T-O-N-E. So with that all being said, thank you for listening to the program today. I'm going to pray for the listeners 
at this time and then we will be done with the program until I'm able to come on and do chapter 5 of Jesus Was Married. Baruch Hashem, Yehovah Elohim. Our eternal God and Father, we come before thee in the name of Yahshua, our Savior and Redeemer. We pray the blessings of heaven upon us physically and spiritually as we come to know the gospel law and the restoration of truth in these latter days. We pray for thy kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, that Zion might be redeemed, that your son Adam, who is Michael, may have a place to come down upon the earth as Zion below is redeemed, as Zion above comes down out of heaven with the church of the firstborn to establish the kingdom of God on the earth and usher in the millennial reign of Yeshua, our Messiah. We love thee, Father. We thank thee for being such a good father to us. That your ways are not our ways. But everything that you do is for our benefit. And our salvation that we may receive exaltation in time if we are obedient to thy laws. We love thee, Father, with all of our hearts. And we say these things in the name of Jehovah our Elohim, in the name of Michael, who is Adam, our father, in the name of Yeshua, our Redeemer and Savior, who the Gentiles call Jesus. I am your witness. And I say these things in the name of Messiah. Amen.